Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into uh, the great Christian thinkers. And while we will talk about um, some figures today, as we have been recently, we've really been getting into uh, the narrative of history, if you will, what is going on in the bigger picture. So this is very much what we will be about today, which will also allow us to talk about some uh, important religious communities that maybe some of you out there have heard of. So uh, this will be a very full program this evening, and I do have John O'Hare with me in studio. So John, great to have you with me another evening. Always nice to be here, Joe. Thank you. So John, we are in the, what, 17th century, and we will be getting into a little bit of the 18th century. Now, let us set the stage here, if you will. What is going on in uh, the 17th century? Well, first we have to understand and appreciate what is going on in France, because what is going on in France very much is influencing uh, the bigger picture. So what figure should we turn to, John, but uh, one Bishop Jansen? Why is he important? Well, maybe some of you out there have heard of that name, Jansen, because of the heresy <laughs> Jansenism. Well, what did he believe and what was condemned? He believed in this absolute corruption of human nature, and it was so strong that it was condemned by uh, one Pope, Innocent X. Now, he was a bishop in Holland, but uh, there were some uh, sympathizers in France, if you will, John, who uh, believed in what Bishop Jansen had to say. Why? Why would there be sympathizers to Jansen's cause in France? Well, in France, many felt that uh, people were getting too uh, lukewarm as it relates to repentance and ultimately calling people out in their sin. There were many reports that you had these uh, Jansenists versus the Jesuits, where the Jansenists believed the Jesuits were going too soft in their penances. For example, in the sacrament of confession, they weren't being strong enough. They weren't calling the people out to repent of their sins. And so the Jansenists were very critical. Uh, this was widespread in France. And conversely, what you had, John, was this not only critique of whether or not the Jesuits and priests as a whole were being critical enough on sin, but also this overscrupulosity, right? This overscrupulosity. So on one hand, you have, well, you're not being strong enough on sin, and then on the other there's such a belief on the absolute corruption of sin that there was this overscrupulosity. And while, well, what's the problem there, John? There's no freedom in that, right? There's no joy in that. So you had these two extremes. Why are we talking about this? Well, what's going on in 17th century France very much is influencing the church. And John, could we not say, we see this today? Don't we ever? <laughs> yes, we do. We see this today. I mean... Certainly, on one hand, we could say that uh, we are not critical enough of sin. We, we drown sin out. We have talked about that a great deal. But on the other hand, the overcompensation, if you will, is this overscrupulosity, being so critical of sin that you're not free to live in God's joy. 
Okay, so there was this, this tension, if you will. And so the church did need to re-examine this, and they did. There needed to be reform, and there was, right? Uh, there was another heresy by the name of quietism. This spoke to being too passive in meditation and, and contemplation. Uh, there was no activity, if you will. We often, John, talk about the contemplative life and the work in light of contemplation. Well, uh, the heresy of quietism was, yeah, about the contemplative life, but not the work, not the labor, not the activity. So there was certainly some confusion going on in 17th century France, but again, there was also some good as well. Yeah, I go back to when this show began and we had the Gnostics. Again, mm. body, spirit are separate. And then another thought comes is reform. Reform is a theme throughout religion. Let's get mm. back to our basics. Yes. And yes. this had a little bit to do with that. Yeah. Another thought comes to me. This is today, uh, February the 21st, is the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. Mm. And the Pope came down on Jansenism. And Catholics stick together with their Pope. Yeah. We may not love the Pope, but we respect him, and we certainly respect the Chair, and we stay together. Yeah, we just talked about that last week, right, what it means that. to respect the Pope, the, the, the authority of the Pope, very timely, John. Yeah. Um, so you, you have these heresies that we're going to get into more later, uh -huh. but I want to read something here from um, Alfred Lappel's work, uh, The Catholic Church, A Brief History. And he says this, while rationalism was making inroads into theology and preaching, we talked about that a few weeks ago, John, there was also an upsurge in religious life with the practice of Eucharistic adoration, devotions to the child Jesus, the Sacred Heart and Mary, the nuptial mysticism practiced in many convents, the Jesuit theater plays for Christmas, the Passion, and Easter. After the papacy had won new respect through the Council of Trent and the slowly implemented process of pastoral reform, an alliance developed between the Vatican and uh, what we call the little people, John. The progressive ideas of reformed Catholicism with its anti-papal mentality got nowhere with simple believers who clung to the veneration of the saints, to splendid Corpus Christi processions and pilgrimages, and to exposition of the Blessed Sacrament on altars ablaze with candles. Such fidelity to the Church was marked, on one hand, by concern for tradition, and on the other, by feast days and ceremonies in which the pious heart could thrill and catch a glimpse of heaven while still on earth. Excellent. Those were wonderful devotions. Yeah. Many of them still go on. Corpus Christi is still a big day, and it used to be a big day. I mean, you had to, they would strew flowers on the sidewalk, and you would, as you would walk to the church in a procession, yeah. Those were excellent attempts to revitalize Catholic faith, re-evangelize the faithful, and that is always going on. And, Amen. Uh, we have today the tension between, shall we say, left and right. Mm. And Jansenism is definitely uh, a, a, an attempt to get to a uh, stricter, but it kind of went a little, it went too far. Yeah, what we ought to call it, John, is that Jansenist tendency, yeah. you know, yeah. to say, hey, you're not strong enough on sin, but on the flip side, while you say that, don't be so overscrupulous, if you yeah. will, that there's no joy. And, and I think you're right. There is a tension there. Um, and we have to see that tension for what it is. We have to yeah. call that tension for what it is. So, again, 17th century France, <laughs> like every other century, was marked by heresy, but also marked by renewal. Yes. Marked by renewal. As we have talked about often, renewal comes in the form of religious communities. That and that's what we want to get to this evening, in particular, uh, the Trappist community and the Redemptorists. Correct, yeah. 
The Trappists uh, are Cistercians. If you take a look at the Trappists, they are OCSO, Order of Cistercians of the Strict Order. So you have Cistercians and you have OCSOs or Trappists. Now, the Trappists were founded by a guy named Armand Jean de Rancay, born 1626, <laughs> died 1700. And this guy came from a well-to-do family. Believe me, he could out-trump Trump, I think. Anyway, we'll get into that. <laughs> but anyway, he, um, he was ordained a priest early on by his uncle. And uh, as a young age, maybe 25, he was an ordained priest, and he also had a concubine, a girlfriend. And he did not lead a good Catholic life at all, and he wasn't mm-hmm. interested in leading a good Catholic yeah. life. And by inheritance, he inherited this La Trappe Abbey in Normandy in France. He never went there, but he was the official head of it. <clears throat> and then, as he's going through life, uh, the girlfriend died, and this was a shock. And then around, oh, 1660, 60, 62, he does go to this monastery, and he finds, shall we say, truth. He, mm-hmm. he, he converts. He uh, he goes to confession, and it makes a big change. And then he becomes the abbot from about 1663, and he retires around 1697 due to ill health, dead at 1700. And he really revives this order by making it quite strict. Now, the order only had about six or so people when he was there, mm-hmm. and by the time he left, it was quite large. So yeah. you can see these reform movements can attract people. People are looking for truth, for a cause, whatever. Yeah. And they yeah. were attracted to the trap. And they came to him, and you lived a very uh, monastic life, prayer, silence, silence at meals, silence along. You had products that were allowed the monastery to survive. You made products, you sold them. But uh, there was a highway outside, and he did away with the highway. We were, we were silent. I mean, he still was able to engage in commerce. And um, a lot of people thought he was going a little bit too far. And was he a Jansenist? No, he was not a Jansen. Mm-hmm. He seemed to be close, but no, he was not. He signed papers to that effect. And uh, anyway, he attracted men to this order, mm-hmm. women as well, because the uh, OCSOs are both male and female. Today they have about 2,100 monks and mm-hmm. about 1,200 nuns. And, um, and they grew, and, and there's still quite a to-do. Uh, Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk. Uh, one of the most, probably the most notable American Trappist uh, mm-hmm. ever. And yeah, his book, along. The Seven Story Mountain, and many others that he wrote are still quite popular. Oh, sure, alongside uh, Thomas Keating as yes. well, uh, another, yes. another famous Trappist monk. And, John, we are here in Chico, California, uh, yes, Northern indeed. California. Yes, indeed. And uh, why do I bring this up? Because, well, there's a popular uh, Trappist monastery here not too far in Vina. Yeah, Vina is uh, uh, New Clairvaux, as it's officially called. Mm-hmm. was founded in 1955. Now, if you go back into church history here in the United States, leading up to World War II, we were quite a Christian nation. And after World War II, I would just say was the golden age of Christianity, 1945, mm-hmm. 1965, seminaries were full, churches were full, and the Trappist monastery, you couldn't build Trappist monasteries fast no, enough, couldn't. according to my reading. <laughs> and this was begun in 1955, largely from monks from the Gethsemane uh, Monastery in Kentucky, and they came here. Now, around 1965, things began to change, as we are well aware. (laughs) And, but uh, Vina is still here, and uh, and they are surviving, and they have vocations. Good for them, and they're still here. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you bring something up, John, this quiet. What is the draw? I mean, why do people (laughs) leave the everyday life abandon their everyday life so as to go to a place like Vina. Huh? In the end, 
Uh, what lies behind that question? But our thirst for happiness. Yes. For happiness. Our, our thirst to be fulfilled. Our thirst to be satisfied. We look for all of these things in the material world, and what we don't realize is that we are looking for God, but in all the wrong places. My soul is restless until it rests in you. Yeah, amen. So you can go all the way back, John, to um, St. Anthony of Egypt, who leaves the metropolis of Alexandria, Egypt, to do what? To go into the desert, to be alone, to rest in God, and for hundreds and hundreds of years after St. Anthony of Egypt. So many have been following his pattern, and uh, like the Trappist community, leaving, abandoning the world so as to enter into the, the, the classroom of silence, as one Matthew Kelly likes to put it, so as to enter into what it means to truly thirst for God. Because the love that satisfies John can only be found in God. And while we look at it in all of these places in the world, we are going to be left more thirsty, yeah. all right, more hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what we find uh, when we study carefully uh, these great religious communities is that, yes, uh, these are the halls and convents of many great saints because why they find the love that satisfies. Now, there was another quite famous Trappist by the name of St. Charles de Foucault, another Frenchman, mm-hmm. and he died around 1916 in the middle of World War I in Africa. And he was uh, a, a Trappist out there, and uh, he would go out to try to uh, do missionary work, evangelize with the, uh, the African people. Mm-hmm. And uh, however, World War I was going on, and there was colonial contest between Germany and the other powers. Mm-hmm. And he was martyred not by Germans, but by uh, by Africans who uh, thought he was on the other side or something like that. Mm-hmm. But he is a well-known Trappist monk. Yeah, many Trappists, um, I mean, there are a number of Trappist saints, and certainly the Trappist community, an outgrowth of the Cistercian community, John, uh, has withstood the test of time. And the Cistercians are still around. They're, they're, oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, we have the Cistercians and the Trappists, and we also have the Redemptorists. Um, this program is called John the Great Christian Thinkers. We put an emphasis on the doctors of the church, and the founder of the Redemptorist community is, well, another doctor of the church, yes. one St. Alphonsus de Liguori, another important figure to our reflections this evening. Yeah, he is an Italian gentleman from the area of Naples, also well-to-do, not quite as well-to-do as our first guy. And He uh, couldn't trump Trump, John? He, he couldn't trump Trump, no. He, he, no. Uh, he, he did well, though, thank you. Uh, maybe <laughs> yeah. a written Romney, I don't know, but he yeah. was well-to-do, okay. Anyway, in 1696 to 1787 was, where his, was his years, and so he was a later gentleman, and he began life as a lawyer, and a holy Catholic man, a lawyer, and then he lost a case, a big case, and he felt it was through his own fault. Mm. I'm not sure what the exact details were, and this put him into, um, uh, call it a depression. Mm-hmm. Now, notice that uh, the founder of the Trappists, Armand Jean de Rossin, also had a little bit of a depression, a depression mm-hmm. and so did the founder of the Redemptorists, uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori, and after this, he uh, became a priest, and took a little while, but by age 30, he was ordained a priest, and he attracted, he was, he went to a man who was trying to found an order, but was not successful, and then the man asked him to found an order of nuns, which St. Alphonsus did, and then he founded an order of priests. They are now called the Redemptorists, and quite successful. Now, St. Alphonsus Liguori was, shall we say, to the left 
of the Trappists. He was very kindly towards penitents mm-hmm. and a little bit like Pope Francis. Come on, let's get back in with the field hospital. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and let's get, let's come yeah. back in. And that was his uh, charism, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. The Redemptors are still around, and they do a lot of work in um, retreats. And we have a very well-known uh, <clears throat> Redemptorist who is a saint here from the uh, uh, United States, the former Archbishop of Philadelphia, right. St. John Neumann. Yeah, that's right. John, real fast, you just used the word charism, and this is a question that I get asked often before we go any farther. What is a charism? And I want to go to the catechism here, and this is paragraph 2003. Grace is first and foremost the gift of the Spirit who justifies and sanctifies us, but grace also includes the gifts that the Spirit grants us to associate us with His work, to enable us to collaborate in the salvation of others and in the growth of the body of Christ, the Church. There are sacramental graces, gifts proper to the different sacraments. There are, furthermore, special graces, also John called charisms, after the Greek term used by St. Paul, and meaning favor, gratuitous gift, and better yet, maybe, uh, John, benefit, okay? So whatever their character of the Catechism says, sometimes it is extraordinary, such as the gift of miracles or of tongues. Charisms, and this is key, John, are oriented towards sanctifying grace and are intended for the common good of the church. They are at the service of charity, which builds up the church. So we're talking about these religious communities, John, um, the Cistercians, the Trappists, the Redemptorists. They have particular charisms that are pronouncing particular gifts. Another religious community that we're not going to get too far in right now that comes up during this time is the Passionists, right? What was their charism? Well, what is in the name? Right, this this preaching of the the passion of Christ. Let me uh, it, around sixteen fifty seven, the founder of the Trappists, Armand Jean de, my French is not very good, Bautier. No. <laughs> okay, he came Better across this quote from somebody. Here it is: Either the gospel deceives us, or this is a house of reprobates. Mm. His life was not very good in sixteen fifty seven, and he hears this. I mean, the concubine is dead, and you know what have I been doing? I am a priest, and all this. And this, this was a little saying, and it got him thinking deeply. The beginning of a charism, quite possibly, but he realizes his life has been kind of bad. We all know the story of Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. She takes this trip on a train to northern India, and there she sees the poor all piled on this train and on the roof. And wow, there is a calling. Yeah, yeah. So while there is this charism, um, there is a calling that accompanies it. Right, Because what did the Catechism just say? What is a charism? It is a gift from God, a grace from God. Remember, charism, or the word grace, comes from the Greek charis, grace, charism, right? You can see the, the, the same root. It is a gift from God that assists us, right? Assists us in building up the body of Christ. If it's a charism, if it's a grace from God, it is going to be given, well, from God. Right, that's where so it comes So he from. plants it in our heart. But John, we must respond to that grace. We must respond to that grace. We must cooperate in that grace. And when we do, well, the church is forever better for it. Yes, it right? is. We are talking here, John, about the Trappists and the Redemptorists and the Passionists founded by St. Paul of the Cross because men stopped themselves in their tracks, literally like Mother Teresa did, yeah. and responded to that interior prompting. And its outgrowth was this beautiful charism, this love for the poor Christ, 
uh, the Christ who redeems, the passion of Christ, all these things. And we are made to then see the beauty of the whole body of Christ. Striking, yes. striking. And, and, and these orders have left us much richer. They have, uh, each one of them has a different slant, shall we say, but it's a slant on the same truth, mm, uh, mm. different attractions. When I go to Vina, there is a certain calling, not that I want to go become a Trappist, but there is a calling to go to a life which is sincerely dedicated to, to Christ. Now, out at Vina, uh, you become a monk. A man goes there, and he would become a novice monk. You don't go there to become a priest. You may want to, mm. and after you're there for some years, you're there to be a monk, not a priest. But it, And they may say, would you like to be a priest? And they may not. Mm-hmm. But you are not there to be a priest. You are there yeah. to be a monk. That's right. And they live together. And they farm and do whatever it is that that monastery does to support itself, and they do fine. And they are building chapels, and they are praising God. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, they do have a cassock, but mostly if you go out there, you're going to see them in jeans and blue work shirts, because mm-hmm. that's what they do. Yeah, that's right. John, I'm looking up at the clock, and we don't have a whole lot of time left. And I thought it would be good to maybe reflect at least a little bit into... Um, why St. Alphonsus de Liguori is a doctor of the Church, right? Among many works stands, I think, maybe his most popular, The Glories of Mary. The Glories of Mary. And if you've ever gotten your hands on The Glories of Mary, you know why this is probably his most popular work. Um, I would say if there would be anything to take from it, I mean, if there's one thing that we could speak to, it would be the richness to which he illuminates the person of Mary in light of uh, sacred scripture. Now, it is often said, John, to us as Catholics, if Mary was so important, why is she not in sacred scripture more? Well, we must first say this, (laughs) as it relates to um, why we don't see Mary more. People were not receiving the message of Jesus Christ, let alone who Mary was. So obviously the the emphasis was going to be on the person of Jesus Christ. But in saying that, where do you see Mary? but in all of those important places in the life of Christ, in his birth, of course, in the beginning of his public ministry, and also um, at his death, as she is there at the foot of the cross. So she is there at all the important places in his life. What St. Alphonsus de Liguori does in the glories of Mary, among other things, is he not only highlights that piece, but also where we find some Marian typology in the Old Testament. There's some original insights to St. Alphonsus de Liguori and so far as how many um, women in the Old Testament prefigure Mary. For example, you can look at Miriam and how she travels along the Nile of Egypt watching this flight into Egypt. Uh Um, Does that story sound familiar where there is a new Miriam, if you will, (laughs) and the mother of God who is not watching a flight into Egypt but who is actually the one carrying the Son of God into Egypt. So mm. he really plays around with this. And if anyone were to ask me, you know, what could I gain from reading the glories of Mary? Well, quite simply, a deeper understanding of just not who Mary is, but her role in salvation history. Her role in salvation history. He does take up some of the spiritual aspects, John, of who she is as a disciple. Okay, so there's some um, rich insight there as well. But the glories of Mary, again, among others, this is just not the only work, among others, is a work that is truly a, a great, great work. Yeah, seven, he wrote that in 1750. Mm-hmm. And, you know, remember our country, we haven't even had the Boston Tea Party yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's about when this is coming out. And Europe is still 
very Catholic, but trouble is ahead. Remember the French mm-hmm. Revolution, 1789. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, what he wrote in Glories of Mary was practiced still well into the 19th century. It was a very popular book, and um, and her devotion to her, uh, he was quite instrumental in devotion to Mary. And sometimes compare Genesis chapter 3 and Luke chapter 1. Mm, and compare mm. Eve and Mary mm-hmm, and see mm-hmm. their their different responses. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah, Mary is a very influential in, in salvation. Yeah, one of the key pieces that, that he took up was just as Eve is the instrumental cause and in loss of grace, so is Mary the new Eve the instrumental cause and in the restoration of grace. So again, these are things to be gained from St. Alphonsus de Liguori. Um, you know, he founded the Redemptorist John in, what, 1732? So we are in the 18th century. Yeah. Uh, it was the Trappists that were founded, I think, at the end of the 17th century. But you can begin to see and appreciate that uh, we are moving along, and as we're moving along, uh, the Church continues to reform itself. The Church continues to renew itself. The Church continues to grow and thrive. And, and while there are um, these downward spirals, every time you have a downward spiral, you're going to have you know, renewal. And, and Correct, so you yes. do have that during this time. It is interesting to note, I don't know if we talked about this a few weeks ago, John, but we should remember we had all of these doctors of the church in the 16th century. And you look at the list of the doctors of the church after the 16th century and from what, mid 17th century up to and through really uh, the late 19th, early 20th century, you really only have one doctor of the church, and that's St. Alphonsus de Liguori. That is correct. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't holy people. No, That doesn't no. mean there aren't saints. The mm. church has always had holy people. If you go back even to the Bible, when the Jews were just falling apart after Solomon, yep. there were holy Jews. That's I right. I can't that's give right. you a name or two, but there were holy Jews, sure. you got to believe. And there's yeah. holy Jews, holy Christians, all through the 18th century, at 1700, and huge things came on. Our own country was founded. We had Catholics here in uh, in Baltimore, in particular. Mm-hmm, uh, so mm-hmm. the the number of, shall we say, celebrity intellectuals declined in the 16th century, and uh, and but they came back again in the 19th century, and they're huge in the 20th century. Although remember, many of them are still alive or recently dead, mm-hmm. and we have to go over all of that body. Yeah, and w- I would even point out, I think the smartest guy alive today is. Benedict the Sixteenth. Yeah, mean, well, he is he is widely regarded as well. Some have said he's probably going to be a doctor of the church oh, for everything that he's contributed to the life of the church and his writing. Um, yeah, I mean, we talked, John, about these doctors of the church, but you just said it. I mean, there are many other um, very holy men and women. I mean, I had mentioned the Passionist and Saint Paul of the Cross. I mean, the the, the founder of the Passionist community. Um, there are many. Uh, great men and women during this time. They just might not be doctors of the church. Anyhow, John, that is that is a wrap. Um, moving forward, we will just continue to work through our, our time period. I think we're going to be bumping up on some, maybe not doctors of the church, but some pretty important saints, and right. we'll kind of be announcing those in, in coming weeks. All right, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, 
The website is joeholcraft.org.